Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope that you're still well. <laughs> Things continue to be interesting while I'm writing this. Um, and as I'm recording, my, my robot vacuum that um, I believe we've established you cannot hear in the background, but it is, it is currently trying to find its home. Um, so I'll be curious to see if it's managed to do that by the time I'm done recording today. Anyway, um, I, I also have the usual wondering what will happen next in my life and if that will impact how quickly I can write and record episodes. Uh, but whatever happens, I'm not going anywhere. Um, I just not might not be coming to you as frequently, depending on what happens. Um, anyway, today we start the last of our Greek epics. Um, initially, I thought I'd make a separate episode providing background on the poet and the epic. Um, but there's little enough about that that I decided to just make it the first act of this episode instead. Um, we are moving several centuries forward in time from the archaic period in which Homer wrote to the Hellenistic period. Um, so a reminder of our Greek historical periods. Um, the archaic period is, of course, the oldest. Then we have the classical Hellenic period. Um, and after Alexander the Great rose to power and tried to conquer the world, we get the Hellenistic period. Um, our tragedians, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, are from the classical period. Homer is from the archaic period. Um, so now we're into a period between the Greece that we picture when we picture ancient Greece, which is probably that Hellenic um, classical period, and the Rome we picture when we picture ancient Rome. Um, we're in between those two, those two times. Apollonius of Rhodes wrote the only epic that survives from this Hellenistic period. Um, and the reason I'm not devoting a whole episode to him is that <laughs> there really isn't a lot to say. Uh, he lived in the 3rd century BCE, so the 200s BCE. He was from <laughs> Rhodes, surprise, with the name like Apollonius of Rhodes. Um, so obviously he was from Rhodes. Um, but he also spent a lot of time in Alexandria, and he even um, for a period served as the head of that famous library of Alexandria. Um, that that wonder of the world, right? Um, and obviously he wrote poetry, most notably um, the epic that we're going to cover in this and the next three episodes. Um, there are four, four books in this epic, and so we will take four episodes to cover it. Most of his poetry is fragmentary, um, but the Argonautica, this epic, is fairly intact, which is why it's probably all that we'll wind up covering of him. I... We haven't gotten, in, I haven't started doing poetry yet, and and one of the difficulties with that is so much of it is fragmentary. So trying to decide how best how best to cover um, some of those poets in this sort of medium. Anyway, so the Argonautica is, of course, what we are starting to read today. Um, there are a handful of translations that are available in English. Um, and I'm probably going to be working from a couple of them. Um, I, I generally prefer to read poetry that's been translated into verse. So it's still poetry, right? Um, as opposed to when it's translated into prose. And with these epics, it's not uncommon to find translations that are translated into prose as opposed to verse. Um, so... I'm reading the Arthur Way translation from 1912, um, but 
it is it is so flowery and so carefully rhymed in the translation that um, that it just it feels very dense. Um, some of that is probably Apollonius's fault as well, but um, yeah. So I so I'm reading the Arthur way, but I'm also working from E. P. Coleridge's prose translation that's from 1889. Um, there is, however, a fairly new translation by Peter Green. Um, so if you can get your hands on that, that's probably your best bet. Um, I was looking to see if my library had an ebook that I could easily access. And it has an audiobook, which is which is great. Epics really were meant to be heard. Um, but it it is shown as being abridged. Um, and obviously, I don't want to work from something that is abridged. Um, I suspect that that abridgment relates to footnotes um, and endnotes and commentary as opposed to the epic itself, but I don't know that for certain since I don't have a copy of the text to work from. Um, So if you can get your hands on Peter Green, um, do it. Go ahead and listen to it. It'll give you enough of a gist of the story. I'm sure it's about five hours long, so... Um, based on the number of books in the epic, I think it covers most of it. Um, but again, I'm not choosing to work from that 1999 translation. So again, that's significantly, that's 110 years newer than the E.P. Coleridge one that I will primarily be working from as I write summaries. Um, anyway, the story should be familiar, at least in part, um, because we've seen we've seen parts of it. Uh, particularly in um, a little a little play called Medea, um, and you may have heard at least parts of the story of Jason and the Argonauts or um, the Golden Fleece before, um, and that is the story that we're about to read in the Argonautica. So we will take a short break and then we'll start reading Book One. <laughs> Book one begins with an invocation of Phoebus, Apollo, the god of music, and an announcement that this epic will be about the men who journeyed on the Argo to fetch the golden fleece. You see, Peleus got this oracle that a one-sandaled man would lead to his death. And sure enough, shortly thereafter, Jason came walking across the river and lost a sandal in the process. Peleus was in the midst of a feast celebrating Poseidon, but ignoring Hera, and saw Jason with his one sandal and freaked out. He decided that the only way to avoid the fate foretold by the oracle was to send Jason as far away as possible in hopes that he'd, you know, get lost or die on the journey. Um, But before we get to the story of the Argo, you need to know who made up the crew. And if your eyes start to glaze over in the next section, I don't blame you. Apollonius goes on to go into detail on every single Argonaut. Um, I will skip most of those details. You can read them yourself or, again, listen to an audiobook version of them. Um, so first, there's Orpheus, the famous musician, and Asterion and Polyphemus, the son of Elatus, not to be confused with the Cyclops in the Odyssey. Um, and there's Jason's uncle, Iphiclus, and Admetus, um, and Eurytus and 
Echion, the sons of Hermes, and their kinsman, um, Ethalides, and Coronis, whose dad was killed by the centaurs, and Mospus, and Eurydamus, and Menetius, and Eurydion, and Erebotes, and Oilus, and Canthus, who is doomed to die in Libya, far from Colchis, um, and Cledius and Iphitus, the sons of Eurydice, oh, and the sons of Echos, Telamon, who we best know as the father of Big Ajax, and Peleus, best known as Achilles' dad, um, and Butes, and Phaleros, and Typhus, whom Athena had urged to join the crew. Um, after all, it was Athena who helped Argus build the ship known as the Argo. You'd think that would mark an end to this catalog. You'd be wrong. There's uh, Phleas, the son of Dionysus, and Talaus, and Areus, and Laodocus, and don't forget Heracles and his squire Helus, oh, and Nopleus, whose entire genealogy is provided, because why not? And Idmon, too, and of course, those famous twins, Palidukes and Castor. And Aphoratus' sons, uh, Lynceus and Edas, and Neleus' son, Paraclimenus, and Amphidamus and Cepheus and Ancaeus, and Augeus, who legend says is the son of Helios, and Astarius and Amphion, and uh, Euphemus, and a couple more sons of Poseidon, Erginus, and the other Ancaeus, not to be confused with the one I mentioned a few moments ago. And Meleagar and Laocaon, not to be confused with the Laocaon from Troy. And don't forget Uncle Iphiclus, whom we already mentioned, but Apollo, uh, Apollonius lists twice. And uh, are we done yet? <laughs> of course not. Uh, there's still Polymonius, a descendant of Hephaestus, and the other Iphitus, and the sons of Boreas, and um, who are Calais and Zetes, and Acastus and Argus, and I think that's everyone. Well, except for uh, the son of Ia's son, Jason himself. Yes, you will frequently see things about the son of Ia's son. Um, that's Jason. Do not get Jason and his father Ia's son confused. Ia's son is not some ancient spelling of Jason. It is Jason's father's name. <laughs> anyway, that's all of the Argonauts. That section is significantly longer than what I just summarized. Um... The crew prepares the ship and prepares to sail. They they say farewell to their women folk, and Jason's mother clings to him and weeps over the fear that she will never see him again. It's all very melodramatic. But Jason tells her to buck up or go cry inside so that she doesn't appear as a bad omen for his voyage. And he sets off. Now, given the fact that Heracles is a member of the crew, everyone thinks that he should be in charge. But Heracles protests because, you know, this isn't his quest, it's Jason's. So Jason should be in charge. And since Heracles says so, everyone agrees, and thus Jason is made captain of the crew. They sacrifice to Apollo, take up their seats, and set sail. There are a few disagreements among the crew of type A personalities, but Orpheus plays some music and everyone chills out and gets over with it. Uh, um, and, sorry, and gets over it. They sail along singing sea shanties until they reach the island of Lemnos. Now, about a year ago, at least as far as this epic is concerned, um, so in the time of the epic, a year before that, the women of Lemnos killed all of the men because the men were more into the maids they'd captured in Thrace than they were into their wives. 
The only man who was spared this fate was old King Thoas. His daughter, Hypsipyle, put him to sea in a hollow ark, much like a significantly older Moses. The result of this meant that Thoas, although alive, was no longer the ruler of Lemnos. Instead, the island is populated completely by women and ruled by Hypsipyle. When they see the Argo, they put on their armor and go to the beach to meet the ship. The Argonauts insist that they mean no harm. They're just passing through. And Hypsipyle agrees to meet with their leader. Jason puts on his best cloak, a gift from Athena herself. And it is love at first sight, at least on Hypsipyle's end. But not all of the Argonauts go with Jason. Heracles and a few others stay with the ship, and Heracles worries that they will stay too long. It's quite clear to Heracles that Hypsipyle plans to hold the Argonauts captive until a new generation is born. And frankly, he's not exactly wrong. That is kind of the plan. Plus, Jason has happily taken up residence with Hypsipyle. Um, Heracles is eventually able to convince his comrades, and more importantly, Jason, that they should resume their journey on this quest to find the Golden Fleece, as requested by Peleus. Um, And and they do. They, They leave Lemnos. They finally cross the Hellespont and enter the Black Sea. For their next port, they have two choices. There's the one populated by the six-handed giants and the one where the Doliones live. And they opt for the latter, the one that doesn't have the six-handed giants, the one with just the people. The Argonauts are well received by the Doliones. They, They build an altar to Apollo, make another sacrifice, and they're just great friends. It's all good. Um, until a a misunderstanding leads to a big battle and Jason kills the king in the melee. The queen responds to her husband's death by hanging herself. To make matters worse, Zeus whips up a storm that prevents the Argonauts from leaving for 12 whole days. Uh, But that gives everyone time for some impressive funeral rites and reconciliation. Um, So they, they, after having killed each other, become friends again they which I suppose is a good thing they they come up with a treaty and actually do forgive each other um Mopsus being a bit of a soothsayer sees a bird sign that he interprets to mean that they need to build a shrine to Rhea the mother of all the gods um and they do that and that is what appeases the gods enough for the storm to end and um to allow the Argonauts to once again set sail They pass the Bosporus and make landfall again, this time near the mouth of the river Chios, where the Mycenaeans live. Um, The Argonauts are again welcomed with open arms. I mean, really and truly, this journey's going going great. Everyone loves them. Um, Heracles goes off hunting, and Helos goes to fetch water. Um, Now, there's a nymph that lives in the spring where Helos is gone, um, to get the water, and and she thinks he looks kind of cute. So she reaches up, grabs his arm, and pulls him umber, under. N- not not cool. I, don't do that, people. Don't. It's not cool. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Don't abduct somebody just because you think they're cute. Realizing that Helas hasn't returned in a timely fashion, Polyphemus, again, not the Cyclops, just a mortal, calls out to Heracles. And together, Heracles and Polyphemus go in search of Helas. Eventually, the rest of the crew decides to leave the three behind and continue their journey. 
Um, not everyone is happy about this decision, and there is a bit of argument. Um, particularly, Telamon is is particularly angry about this this decision. Um, but it's what they decide nonetheless. Um, and and it turns out that it's okay. Glaucus, a sea god, pops up out of the ocean and says, no, it really, it's okay. Heracles isn't fated to become a famous hero because of the quest for the Golden Fleece. His fate lies back in Argos, where he's going to perform his 12 labors for Eurystheus, and that's what's going to make him famous. And Polyphemus, he's going to found a famous city here, and and Hillis gets to marry a nymph. It's all great, except for maybe Hillis didn't want to marry a nymph, but it doesn't matter. He gets to do it anyway, and, and according to Glaucus, this is fabulous. So with those pronouncements, Glaucus dives back into the sea, and the Argonauts are relieved by this news. It's it's what was supposed to happen. They weren't supposed to bring Heracles and Helus and Polyphemus with them on their journey. And so they sail on, and book one of the Argonautica ends. I have to admit that this was never assigned when I was a student, and honestly, I can see why. In the limited time available for undergraduate courses, it doesn't make sense to try to fit this epic in when there's Homer to cover, and plus, um, there really weren't any good translations available um, when I was a student. Um, Like I said, this new one is from 1999, and I took epics before 1999. Um, Anyway... Honestly, my first thought was, this is no odyssey. Um, but I i am going to do my best to reserve my comparisons of Apollonius and Homer until we've finished reading the Argonautica instead of, instead of talking about the, the, yeah, this is about, we're not talking about Homer yet. We'll come back to him in a few episodes. Um, so instead, I will just say, um, I'll say that my first thought was, about Oedipus. Um, The Argonautica begins with Peleus sending Jason off on a quest because Peleus wants to avoid the fate of the one-sandaled man. Uh, Side side note, um, am I the only one who pictures Count Rugen holding a sandal at the thought of the one-sandaled man? It just... uh, Princess Bride's my favorite movie. Maybe that's why. Um, so, so Peleus is trying to avoid his fate, and if there's anything that we learned from Oedipus, it's that you shouldn't try to avoid your fate. Um, not that the Oedipus myth and the Jason myth have anything to do with each other, but that's, um, that's totally where my brain went. Um, what I really want to talk about, though, is the women that we see here in book one. Shocking. I know I never talk about the women. Um, and if you follow my personal blog, Seeking Lemnos, um, <laughs> it's particularly uh, shocking, isn't it? Yeah, Seeking Lemnos. My my personal blog has a super esoteric title. I'm a nerd. Um, <laughs> the first women that we see... Um, are the ones left behind, the powerless ones, the ones completely subjugated by a patriarchal society. But then, then we get to Lemnos. Um, Now, there is some evidence that Lemnos was late to the patriarchy game. 
Um, so that may be a bit of what we see in the story of the women of Lemnos killing all of the men. Um, if we try and look at um, what what myths are telling us about how society changed and evolved over time. Um, we know that initially societies were not 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 these strict patriarchies that we see today. Um, and and Lemnos looks like it was that the rest of Greece had kind of really become this patriarchal civilization that we see in in Homer and that we see in in all of these monarchies. Um, but that Lemnos Lemnos didn't make that transition until after after the rest of, of that Mediterranean world. Um, and, and that may be where we get this story that there were no men on Lemnos. Um, now, I like to think of the story a little differently than what is presented by Apollonius. I mean, are there really no men on Lemnos? Or is there simply no patriarchy on Lemnos? So the men that are there aren't what the Argonauts would consider real men. Did you hear my air quotes around real um, because that's what patriarchy is really about, isn't it? It's about manly men being men and doing men stuff, which hurts men as much as it hurts women, right? <laughs> it hurts everybody, um, because nobody can, everybody is being shoved into these roles that are defined by, by the patriarchy. Um, anyway, according to Apollonius, the Argonauts arrive a mere year after the men have been killed. Um, but the women have easily taken up the roles typically handled by men. They are prepared to fight. They have armor that fits. <laughs> that's that's no small feat. Um, they work the fields. They have a functioning government. Uh, so whatever the society looked like before all the men were killed, the women were ready to fill in as soon as the men were gone. Uh, and and there's nothing really that's more threatening to heroes and demigods and patriarchy than women who hold power. Um, so how much of the story of Lemnos is colored by the age in which the story was told? Did they really kill all of the men or did they simply hold power and therefore the men weren't really recognized as true men by by the Greek Argonauts. Anyway, if you want to read my full retelling of the Lemnos myth, you can check it out at seekinglemnos.wordpress.com. Um, there's an about this blog section there where I, I get into some of my philosophy and and feminism and all of the all of that good stuff. Um, anyway, so what do you think of the Argonautica so far? What what do you think about the women that we've met so far? Why do you think Heracles is already out of the picture? I mean, it, we know, I've told you, it's not. this is not a, as long as the other epics that we've read. There are only four books in it. Um, although we've also seen that <laughs> book one is longer than a lot of the other books of epics that we've read. So anyway, um, so it is interesting, though, that, that Heracles is there at the beginning of book one, and he's already gone by the end of book one. What? Why do you think that is? Please pop over to the blog and share your thoughts on this or anything else the Argonautica has made you think of. It's at triumphyourclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. Join me on Patreon. That URL is in the show notes too. I know you're dying to know my vacuum cleaner 
did finally manage to find its dock and has stopped running. <laughs> On Friday, we will read the Homeric Hymn to Helios. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.